Good morning. Uh, super thankful for the giving heart of this church and what, what God is doing. Uh, so thank you from all of us. Uh, it was 1988, the, my freshman year of college. <laughs> Do the math. Uh, I, I'm an 18-year-old away from home for the first time in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I went to school, and I got a job working for a cleaning company. Uh, and we happened to clean uh, high rises. And so I was given a floor in the Piper Jaffrey building, which is some 60 stories in the air. And uh, I would get to work at about 1030 at night, freshman year of college. Uh, this will be familiar for, for many of you. And I would work from 11 to 7 cleaning this floor. And then I would get back just in time for my first class. And I'd go to class all day and I'd get some sleep and go back to work at 11. Fun times. I remember one night I was cleaning uh, the floor, I believe it was the 32nd floor, uh, was my floor, and my supervisor came and he said, hey, would you, would you want to go up on the roof? And I'm like, I say roof, if you say roof, I'm going to go with roof for right now. Um, we're up, he's, I'm like, yeah, that'd be awesome, I mean, like, that's way up there. And so we go up and we get out on the roof and he goes, like, so imagine this roof and there's a two-foot edge that comes up from the, the top of the roof, a two-foot edge, and then, right? And he goes, and he sits on the edge and puts his feet over the side, right? And some of you are like, yeah, I mean, that's just dumb. So <laughs> I'm, I'm all the way back here. I'm like, man, this is cool. This is like awesome, man. This is the coolest view. You can see all, he's like, dude, you need to come over here. I'm like, no, I don't. I do not need to go over there. And then it, then it started. You know what I'm talking about? By started, the peer pressure. You know, oh, you're such a sissy. You can't even look. I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm just listening. I'm like, no, I'm fine. Like, this is a really good view. He's like, you got to look over the edge. And I gave in. So I walked a couple steps, and then I went, no, I'm dead serious. I got all the way up, and I just went, yep, that's cool. Just like that. And some of you are like, you are a sissy. Yep. And why in the world would I do that? Why would I not just run up to the edge and sling my feet over the side? And Well, because I believe something. And I learned it when I was little. I learned that what goes up must come down. And uh, it would be my luck that as I get up there, a gust of wind from nowhere would come, and and then here you go, and it's over in the prime of my life, and so gravity was a belief of mine that informed my behavior that night, and, and, and at least my parents and wife and kids are thankful that I wasn't stupid and crazy. I think we live in an age in the church, and I'm going to take a few moments here before we dive into this to have some honest conversation. Can we do that? Um, because I think the risk is so high that if we don't, uh, there is the danger or the potential to perpetuate the religious church that continues to have zero impact in the world today. And I'm kind of tired of that. I'm tired of putting our hope in a president, thinking that that's going to solve our country's problems. We pray for our presidents and we pray for our leaders, but my hope is in Jesus. And when will we get it through our thick heads that the only thing that's going to solve the problems of our culture is Jesus? period. And I'm not taking any political stance this morning. I'm just simply saying to all of us, it's time that what we believe actually starts informing the way we behave. 
period. And the reason it doesn't is because we know a lot about Jesus, but we don't know Jesus. Because the things that we know in the gut of our heart, like what goes up must come down, actually informs our behavior. But what we only intellectually know about won't. And my prayer for the church today is that the truth that we know about Jesus will actually drop the 13 inches from our thoughts to our hearts and change us deeply from the inside out that what we actually say we believe would actually come out of us in such a way, and, and, and just to go one step further, to bring hope into a hopeless world. And I'm not going to be some Debbie Downer this morning, or Daryl Downer, just be gender inclusive. <laughs> I'm not going to be some downer to say that, oh, the world, no, the world is hopeless, and they don't even know how to define hope. That the most of the time when the world talks about hope, they talk about it from the place of wishful thinking that maybe chance will bring something good. And I'm telling you, there is only one thing that can bring something good. And that is a good, good father. And so when we think about what we have experienced in Jesus, we actually have experienced hope. And if you have Jesus, you have hope. And the degree that you have Jesus is the degree of hope you have. Because Jesus is hope. He's the hope of the world. And so our hope is I hope we all memorize this someday and you could say it back to me. Confident expectation of a better tomorrow based on the character and promises of God that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he's going to do and he has proven it over and over and over and over. That's the hope that we have. It is a beautiful hope and in a hopeless culture that is trying to define hope by what they can do and accomplish and force to happen. Listen to me. People with the most hope, Jesus' hope, will have the most influence. People with the most hope will have the most influence because leadership is influence. And we have an opportunity as the church, if we will rise up and be who Jesus has called us to be, who God has called us to be, his hands and feet, his mouthpiece of love, not judgment, to the world. I'm not saying there isn't right and wrong. There definitely is. But he has called us to be his hands and feet and mouthpiece of love to this world. And so we have hope that this world needs. And people with the most hope have the most influence. And what would happen if Jesus actually got a hold of our heart and not just our head? And so there was a phrase that Andy Stanley communicated this week that he said his dad, Charles Stanley, said all the time. And when he said it, I was like, oh, man, that's true. That's absolutely true. And then it, the weight of the phrase or the statement that I hope we write down today, and I hope we put it on the mirrors of our lives. And every time we go to look at ourselves, we see this statement. But this statement began to weigh heavy on my heart these last four or five days. And I'm telling you, the, the, Jesus is wrecking me. And that's a good thing. There is something that he wants to do in us that's deep. And powerful. And so the statement is this the most important thing in this world is your relationship with Jesus Christ. The most important thing in the world is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Whether you have one, 
You think you have one. You hope you have one. You do have one. The most important thing in the world today, no matter what anybody else says or communicates, is your relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not your spouse, though you love them. It is not your kids, though you die for them. You'd probably die for your spouse, too. It's not your job. It is not your success. It is not your opinion. All of that. And, and hear my heart, because, man, I, I'm, I'm, receive it as you will. All of that isn't even a close second. It's second. But it isn't a close second. The most important thing in the world is your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. And if that would become true in us, oh my gosh. If that would become the passion of our heart, that the most important thing in my life is my relationship with Jesus and nothing else compares, we would be different. It would change everything. Because when Jesus shows up, the real Jesus, he will change the way you think, the way you talk, and the way you act. Your mind, your mouth, and your mission every time. And so I'm saying to us, and I don't think it's an opinion, it is a truth, the most important thing in this world is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And what actually flows out of that? Because here's, here's the problem. This is line one in, the mess, in, in my notes. I know. Socrates said this, and, and, and please hear this. The unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. Now, all truth is God's truth. And there is lots of truth in this statement, which means that the examined life is worth living. And most of us as Christians in the world today spend our life on the circumference of our lives. Matter of fact, science and study would say that most of what we do is autopilot. And we spend ourselves in autopilot Instead of drilling down into the deep parts of who we are and saying, Jesus, flood me. Flood every part. The psalmist David said, search my heart, O God. And I believe with all of my heart, and I'm going to say something that's going to sound a little, bit, a little bit egotistical. Not my intention. I don't want you to hear it that way. Some of you probably will just because I said it like that. Don't. Over the last two or three years, I think there's been some powerful messages come from the front of this room. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about being led by the Holy Spirit in your life. We're talking about that God wants to use you in ways you can't even imagine, that he's actually got a higher calling for every one of us. It's to be part of his mission. That we can get caught up in the muck and mire of a world vision and miss God's vision. And yet, and, and hear my heart, because there are many of us in this room, God is changing us and he's moving things in us and he's working inside out and that's powerful. But for the majority of the church today and us included, we are hearers and not doers of what God is telling us to do. And as powerful as these messages are, or as big as the truth is, it doesn't seem to be having the impact that I believe God wants to have. 
and can have in our lives. And what would happen if we actually believed that the most important thing in the world is your relationship with Jesus Christ? And what would that your life look like and my life look like if that defined everything about who we were? Not me. I'm not the most important thing in the world. You're not the most important. God is the most important thing in this world. And that it's actually true and it could actually bring hope and change to this world. And so we're saying, what happens if we were to grow hope? Jesus hope. In our homes, in our occupations, in our personal lives, in our eternal life, I think the world would change. Because that's the work that God is doing. And so I I, I want you to hear this. The degree that you and I care about this, that Jesus is the most important, your relationship with him is the, the degree that we care and believe that will be the degree that you hear these words today and you put them into practice in your life. And the only one that's going to help us do that is the Holy Spirit. And this is big. And here's why it's big. Because God is redeeming and restoring us to himself through Jesus Christ. Let me put that in practical terms that we can all get. God is overcoming evil with good. Evil does not win. Read the end of the book. God wins. The victory is ours and it happened on the cross and it was solidified in the grave. It's ours. God wins. And so now begins the process in our lives of overcoming evil with good. And there is evil in you. And there's evil in me. And there's evil in others. And even as followers of Jesus, there's areas of our lives we have yet to say, God, come in and deal with and surrender. And I want to say this right here. The hope of the church is that we start getting honest about who we really are. And stop playing church. Because every one of us in this room makes mistakes every day. And struggles and battles to follow Jesus and look like God's son. And yet we often walk in in here acting like we have it all together. And the church becomes the most unsafe place instead of what it's supposed to be is the safest place. And so what's going to always happen from this stage, and I want to give you just a little bit of insight here as we're just being honest and being transparent, and I hope you hear my heart in this. Any leader that you put on a pedestal, including me, and I'm sure none of you have put me on a pedestal. That's great. It's a good start. But to the degree that you put any leader on the pedestal is the degree that you fall off of it. Because that leader more than you knows their humanity better than anybody. And we have this thing where we prop people up. And yes, leadership has responsibility. And we take that responsibility. But leadership also makes mistakes and struggles. And so we are in this together. And we will never stand up here in the front of this room and pretend that we have it all together. Or that what we're doing here on a Sunday morning is the answer to the church world. What's important is that the church gathers and worships and hears God's word and experiences community. How we do that could look a lot of different ways. And so if we're being hearers and not doers, maybe that needs to change. I don't know. And so we hold loosely and say, God, we're struggling. And you've ruined us. And so we're just trying to figure out what it looks like that you're the most important thing in the world. And so one more hard thing before we dive into this. If you struggle as an individual with the fact that that the leader of this church struggles, I'm not in the wrong place. You might be. Because if we don't get vulnerable and transparent about what's going on in us and feel like it's safe to do so, 
then we will never experience the change that God is wanting to do from the inside out. Because not only does the Holy Spirit want to reveal it, but God's people need to come around us and lift us up in it. And so we battle. But God is overcoming evil with good. And so there's good things happening in here. And there's good things happening in here. And God wants to take those good things happening in you and cause those to happen in your family. And the good things happening in you to happen in your workplace. And the good things happening in you to happen in this culture. And so he's overcoming evil with good, with or without us. And the question today is, will it be with you or without you? And so 1 Peter 3, 13 through 18 gives us what this looks like. And how it feels. And I'm going to ask you just to maybe close your eyes as I read this. You can look at the screen if you feel you need to. But I want you to take this in. And hear what Peter is saying about the church that does good and suffers for doing good. Because we're called to do good. A supernatural good. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? What a question. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. You can go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and read Jesus saying everything about the blessed who are persecuted for doing what is right. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Keep Jesus as most important. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. Not defend your faith or prove your doctrine but give an answer to the hope that you have, the confident expectation of a better model because Jesus is who he says he is. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And as he's brought you to God, he longs for the hope in you to bring others to God. So Lord, in this moment, I pray that you would challenge our hearts. We are flesh, human, and yet you desire to make us into the image of your son so that we can be a light in a dark place. Hope to a hopeless world. And may we be those people because you are the most important thing in the world to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so work, as we, as we kind of put this in the framework, and thanks for letting me have that moment because I think it's important that we hear this through that lens. Work is another way God is using us to accomplish his plan in the world to redeem and restore humanity, not to just get rich and have. He is using our work or desires and longs to use our work that we can't think of a work as separate from our relationship with Jesus. We don't get to check Jesus at the door of our jobs. We get to be led in by him because he's already there. And so our work becomes what he's doing. And God wants to use you to grow hope in the world through your work. Not just through your family, which we say is in Christ. And here's the deal. The only person that can order our life is Jesus. And so he doesn't want to be some drawer in your life. Matter of fact, he won't be. He will refuse to be that drawer. He is the dresser that holds it all together, if you'll allow him. And so our family is in Christ. And what does it look like when our job, our work, is in Christ? And so we said our work, we define as what occupies our time. And for most of us, that's our occupation. So work is that thing you do day in and day out to build into the greater good. 
Work is the thing you do, you're a part of, to build into the greater good, not add to the lesser evil. And so how we work becomes incredibly important. And so we said, does our, does, do you believe that our work matters to God? And we answered affirmatively after reading and processing the scriptures in Genesis that our work actually does matter to God, that work existed before the fall, was corrupted by the fall, and God is redeeming it through us because he's redeeming the world, because he's redeeming you. But what matters most isn't what we do. What matters most isn't what we do, but how we do it. How we do it becomes everything. Does how I'm doing it reflect how Jesus would do it? Is what I am saying and believing and thinking and doing in my work what Jesus would be saying, doing, and thinking in your work? And so we get away from what we were always taught to ask growing up or what we were asked multiple times growing up. What do you want to be when you grow up? Because that sowed the seed in our life, the lie in our life that God is working to tear down. And man, it's a job that what you do defines you. No, it doesn't. You don't need self-confidence. You need God confidence. It's different. Self-confidence has an ending and it's you. God confidence goes on forever. And so what happens when how I work becomes the most important thing? And then I'm working to bring good into the evil that is happening all around us. Woo! So our work matters to God. He gave it to us out of his generosity towards us. And our work matters to others. Today, if I could get you to process the importance of what we're about to talk about, our work matters to others. It matters to others. Do you believe, and here's, here's the weight, uh, question, do you love questions that carry weight? Here's a weighty question, because this is the one I want us to process, because if we believe this, oh my gosh, it will change the whole thing, it will take away worry, anxiety, fear, frustration, the whole deal. If we believe this, and again, if we can let it drop from here to here and actually live it, watch what God will do, but do you believe that the future of your work, what God has for you, through the work that you will do, no matter what the title is, do you believe that your work, your future work, is in the hands of God? Because if we do, then it doesn't matter what happens or what the worldly response or what somebody will say or do when we allow what we believe in our faith come to bear on what we do and how we do it. Are you, are you processing with me? You understand what I'm saying? If we believe that the future of my job, my work, whatever it might look like, is in God's hands because I'm a follower of Jesus and he's got me and he cares about me, I tell you what, it doesn't matter where my kids go in life. If they ever need to come home, they can come home. If they're ever struggling, they can come back to dad. And God the Father looks up there and goes, you need to know as much as you love your kids, I love you and I actually love your kids more than you. And so I've got you and I've got a plan. And so it may not look like what you thought it would look like. But if you believe that you can trust me with the future of your work, then you stand bright and tall in love for me. And let your faith come to bear on what you do. Because it will bring good into the midst of evil. So at the core of our work is this fundamental truth that God wants to use our work to bring out the good and keep out the bad. God uses our work in a way that brings out the good and keeps out the bad. What does it look like if your work, what does it, it look like in your work to bring out the good? And so what happens if we woke up every day and say, today I'm bringing the good. 
I'm bringing the good, no matter what the cost. Today, I'm bringing the good. And what if God is wanting to use our work or your work to actually keep out the bad, to transform the evil by overcoming it with good? What if it really isn't about climbing the ladder of success? What if it's really descending into greatness instead of ascending? And so God is overcoming evil with good through your work. And so the most important thing in the world is your relationship with Jesus. And so what changes then in our work? And we trust that our occupational future, our work, is in the hands of God, period. That that's actually true for followers of Jesus. It is in his hands. He's got it. And because of that, we work differently. And our faith comes to bear on our work. And the how takes priority. And so we said last week that when that happens, when Jesus gets a hold of our heart and changes us, we work from a right identity. We're not finding our identity in what we do. We're finding our identity that we're kids, children of God. And so if your identity is in your work, your success goes to your head and your failure goes to your heart. But if your identity is in Jesus, it just doesn't matter. And we work from that right identity. I'm a child of God and I will be his representative. And if that impacts my job, in whatever way, I'm fine. Because God has my future. That's my hope. That's how I'm growing hope. And then we said that it puts a, your faith coming to bear, your Jesus coming to bear, puts a value on all work. Let me say that differently. Puts a value on all job descriptions. Puts a value, takes away the hierarchy, though there is a responsibility of reporting. It takes away the hierarchy. Let me explain this to you. Um, I'm the lead pastor at Alpine Chapel. I'm, I'm the boss. <laughs> scary, right? Some of you are like, ooh, boy. There's about 13 or 14 employees here, and, and, and the social structure here, I am, I am the boss. And I can use that authority however I choose to. But what God is calling, when Jesus shows up, it changes everything. It flips it upside down. I want to tell you about somebody else that works here. His name is Bob. Before we get, we get carried away about who's more important than the other, God sees us as incredibly important, just the same. But Bob got his master's degree in educational administration and spent almost 20 years as a principal. I don't have a master's degree. Some of you are like, huh. <laughs> Gotta continue the church shopping. Bob was a coach for 25 years, coaching wrestling. You don't want me coaching wrestling. It's a special thing to be a coach. Bob's a janitor at Alpine Chapel. But Bob's got some amazing wisdom that I don't have. And I listen when Bob talks. And though I might be the lead pastor and he might be the janitor, in my eyes, we are just as important to this thing. Because that's what happens when Jesus shows up. We don't see roles, we see people. And then we, we're given a moral compass in Jesus, an, a way to behave and act. And so when something happens at our job that is evil and wrong, as a follower of Jesus, we step in, not in judgment, but in love, and we stand for truth. And though it may cost us our job, we believe that he has our future. But we have a moral compass and so it's not just a job. It's a gift God has given us to bring good to evil. 
And then we have this hope that even if my position is small, it's the same and it can have an impact because I can see myself as an instrument God is using in my work to bring good over evil. What would happen? So what does that look like? Man, I, I got to tell you, there's a guy in the Bible that, looks, that, that shows us what it looks like when those four things and in, in our love for God impacts who we are and how we act and behave. His name was Joseph. You guys know Joseph, and back in Genesis, you'll read about Joseph. Matter of fact, back in Genesis, it's 37 through 50. 50 is the last chapter of Genesis. And, and so a good portion of Genesis talks about Joseph. He's pretty important. I would challenge you this week to go read Genesis 37 through 50, the story of Joseph's life after we talk about it. Joseph is the son of Jacob. Jacob was the son of Isaac. Isaac was the son of Abraham. Father Abraham, who received the promise that I'm going to bless you, that you would be a blessing to the world. And that was told to Isaac, who told it to Jacob, who told it to Joseph. And so Joseph finds himself a 17-year-old when we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 37. And I'm not going to assume you know the story. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Joseph. Because I think we look at our life and our work and we think, poor me. And we let... What happens and what we do dictate how we act and how we respond instead of realizing that there can actually be a constant called Jesus no matter what happens. And so Joseph at 17 is one of 12 brothers. Can you imagine? And he's actually Jacob's favorite. (laughs) So much a favorite that Jacob gets this really fancy coat of many colors and gives it to his son, Joseph. Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, though I would get your theology from the Bible and not from the play. (laughs) And he gives it, and Joseph's like, hey, brothers, check this coat out. Not helpful. (laughs) It may be good as the son that is the favorite to get the coat, but the other brothers are going, we're going to kill him. We're totally going to kill him. (laughs) And not only that, but God gives Joseph two dreams. And the first dream is that his brothers are actually going to bow down to him. And so he tells them. (laughs) Another bright, shining moment. Now, I don't think it was malicious. I just think it was innocent joy and excitement. Have you ever had people try to crush your dreams? And so he tells them, and they're like, yeah, we're going to kill him. We're definitely going to kill him. And then he has another dream that not only are the brothers going to bow down to him, but so is mom and dad. And he tells them. (laughs) And Jacob's like, this is Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God, right? He's like, uh, you think I'm going to? But it says in the Bible that Jacob wondered what the dream meant. Isn't that refreshing? And so one day the, the brothers are out tending the flocks and doing the work of the land. And Jacob says, hey, Joseph, I haven't heard from the brothers. Can you go check on them? Right? And so Joseph is headed out to check on his brothers. And he gets there and they see him coming. And they say, okay, here's our chance. We're going to kill him. Like they were literally going to kill him. And one of the brothers who loved Joseph and loved his dad decided, no, let's not do that. Let's actually throw him in a pit and just leave him. And his plan was to come back and get Joseph later. And so like, fine, we'll throw him in a pit. So they get Joseph and they throw him in a pit. Joseph, who had the dream wearing the coat, is in a pit. Probably not the plan he had. We don't know the interaction in Joseph's heart and what Joseph may have said, the Bible doesn't tell us, but we're just going to assume that 
Joseph handled this perfectly. <laughs> or not. And so they see this caravan coming down the road towards Egypt with a bunch of slaves. And one of the brothers said, hey, let's not kill him. That would actually be probably bad. But let's sell him to the caravan headed to Egypt. So let's sell him into slavery. And so they did. They took Joseph and they sold him into slavery. And then they're like, well, what are we going to tell dad? And so they kill a lamb and they spread the blood all over the coat of many colors. And they give that to dad and say, your son is gone. And in that moment, the dad believes his son is dead. And we know that Joseph goes to Egypt, and we know that he is sold into slavery into Potiphar's house, a high-ranking official in Egypt, not Pharaoh, but Potiphar. And it says in the Bible that the Lord was with him. Just the moment in your life, in your job, when you think God isn't with you, that is a lie sown by the enemy if you're a follower of Jesus. Of course he's with you. And it says the Lord was with him and gave him favor, and he rose up in Potiphar's house as the lead guy under Potiphar. For 11 years, he served Potiphar's household with integrity and honesty and truth until Potiphar's wife decided that he was a good-looking man and decided to try to have Joseph. And Joseph would have nothing to do with her because she wasn't for him. And that would hurt his master. But it also would hurt the heart of God, and he didn't want to hurt the heart of God. What happens when your moral compass produces that response in you? And so he says no and no and no and no. And she keeps coming. And finally he says no and runs. And she gets his coat, his cloak. She takes it to her husband. And she says, look what he tried to do. And she lies and Joseph goes to prison. Can you imagine? He's like, oh, finally this, you know, this dream of what God is doing. And he's in prison. And it says that the Lord was with him. Are you getting this? The Lord was with him. And so the jailer, the warden, loves Joseph and brings him up to high-ranking leadership in prison, and God has favor on him. And there's these two guys that are sent to prison by Pharaoh, the cupbearer and the baker. <laughs> and they have dreams, and it, it says that Joseph is over them, and he cares for them. You want to talk about valuing all people? He's their leader. He could subject them. He could lord it over them. He could mistreat them, but he takes care of them. And they come to him when they have a question. What would happen if people in our workplaces started coming to us for life's greatest answers. And they bring the dreams that they had. They each had a dream and Joseph said, well, your dream means you're going to die and your dream means you're actually going to be promoted. <laughs> and the two are released. They're called back to the castle and the baker is killed and the cupbearer is promoted. And Joseph, all he asked was, don't forget about me. Two years go by, Joseph is forgotten in prison. Two years. And Pharaoh has a dream and nobody can interpret it. And so the cupbearer goes... I know a guy, had a dream, said the baker was going to die, you killed the baker, said I was going to be promoted, you promoted me. Pharaoh's like, get him. They bring Joseph before Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I hear that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, oh, no, 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 I can't, but God can. <sighs> the most important thing in his life was God, his relationship with God. And so he interprets the dream. He said, there's going to be famine, so we're going to save, and then there's going to be plenty. There's going to be plenty, and then there's going to be famine, so we're going to save, so that when the famine comes, we're ready, and Pharaoh puts him over the whole kingdom. Come on, right? It's just like God. And here's what I want you to, here's what I want you to get out of this. Here's what I want you to process, because we're going to end this story here really quick, if, if, I, if I can take you here. This is what put Joseph in Hebrews 11 with all of the people of great faith. Joseph is listed there. Joseph, let's take these four things really fast. A right identity, 
a value on all people, a moral compass, and a hope. And let's sew those into to Joseph's life. Joseph valued who he was. And so even though he was given a dream and ended up in a pit, he knew the Lord was with him because he was God's kid, because he had been told all of his life that God had given us a promise. And we can cling to the promise. And God had showed up over and over and over again. So Joseph knew who he was. He knew whose he was. So Joseph valued who he was. Joseph valued how he lived. In the midst of the most difficult time in prison, he has people put under him. Some of us, man, when we're in a place we don't want to be and people are put on us, it comes to bear on them, doesn't it? Darn it, I shouldn't be here, and so you're going to pay for me being here. No, it says that he just came in and loved them and served them and took care of them to the point that they would come to him and say, Joseph, we had a dream. They knew who to come to. Does your job, does your workplace know who to come to? Because the most important thing in your life is Jesus. And so he goes from this place of honor and in, oh, actually, yeah. He goes from this position in prison, but he also values how he lived with Potiphar's wife. I messed that up. Let me go back just a minute. Valued who he was, valued how he lived. When sin and temptation came, he stood for what was right. He ran from the sin. He didn't embrace it. He valued others. That's the piece we just talked about. Valued who he was. Knew he was God's, so he trusted. Valued how he lived. Would not compromise, even to the point of prison, for being innocent. He valued others. He loved those two, and he helped them. And lastly, he had a hope. Joseph is placed over all of Egypt. And God honors him as a faithful servant. All the way through, because of his love and trust in God, he knew who he was, his identity. He knew how he had to live, his moral compass. And it guided him. He knew how to treat others because it values every person. And he knew that there was hope no matter what. And he finds himself in this place. Here's what happens. In the midst of the famine, his family comes to Egypt for food because food has been stored. And so his 10 brothers come in. Are you ready for this? His 10 brothers come in and Joseph goes, hey. And they go, oh, crap. Please don't kill us. Dream one. And he says, listen to me and hear this, church. Please hear it. What God is calling us to do in the place of work. He said, what the enemy, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. I forgive you. Because when you trust God, you know there's a bigger picture. And so you don't hold everybody's sins against them. What you meant for evil. And they go get their father and, and Jacob is brought to his son and dream two. So glad you're alive. Joseph, Jacob dies. Joseph's dad and his brothers, knowing dad is dead, says this. I promise you I'm almost done. Just catch this. This is, this is crucial to this whole thing. I spent too much time in the beginning, but let me have this moment in the end. Jacob dies, and the, the brothers are like, now he's going to kill us. Now he's going to kill us. He's been waiting till dad was gone. He's actually really upset and bitter, and now he's going to kill us. 
Here's what Joseph says. The last chapter of Genesis. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What if the path that doesn't look like you thought it should look like is actually God's plan toward using you to save many lives? And if it's just one, in the kingdom of heaven, that's a lot. Your work matters to others. And we get to do our work the way Jesus would do it because we trust he has our future. And so we don't compromise and we don't find our value in it and we love every person the same no matter where they are on the pedestal. And we have a hope that what I'm doing day in and day out is gonna make a difference because of Jesus. Our work's future is always in the hands of God. And we must trust that our occupational future, our work, is in the hands of God, period. And when we trust that, we will see our work as bringing about the good of God in the world and crushing the work of evil through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I'm closing with the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do this by yourself. It will just be your work. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, it'll be a supernatural work with a supernatural calling because the most important thing in the world is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me? I cannot and will not try to apply this to your job. I can't. But but God can. Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit that we would learn to hear its voice and follow it. And the Holy Spirit, if you understand who he is, is already at your job working. Didn't know if you knew that. He's in your home working. He's everywhere. He's doing the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing people to Jesus. And he's calling you into the journey So you don't have to do it by yourself. You just follow what God is calling you to do. Lynn, we talk all the time about how God is using you in those places. It is supernatural what God is doing. And someday we're going to get you up here and we're going to tell everybody how just being obedient every day, day in, day out, to the good that God is doing through Jesus in you. I'm telling you, they're miraculous stories. Different ones. If we would just stop letting Jesus be a drawer and letting him order our lives and let our work be in him and trust that he's got the future so that our faith can come to bear on what we do because we love Jesus. He's the most important thing in our life. What would happen? It's the kind of church I want to be. It's the kind of person I want to be. And I got a lot of work. But I'm going to figure it out with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit. If you're in this place, I want to pray for you because I believe prayer changes things. Followers of Jesus pray. It's what we do. We pray. And you're here and you would say, I'm in a pretty tough spot right now in my work. And you would raise your hand so we can pray for you. Anybody, just say, man, that's me. You got no idea. You want to talk about evil? I'm in the midst of it. But God has you there for a reason. All right. God sees those hands and so do I. I'll pray for you in a minute. Here's the second question I want to ask. 
<laughs> and this is going to feel really dumb to ask, but you're sitting here saying, I could trust God way more with the future of my work to the point that I would actually live better for him because I trust him so much. Raise your hand if that's you. So God, I pray in this place this morning, God, may church never just become a place we attend and check a box. May church be the group of people you've called together to live your mission in the world. And that when we gather, we gather to love you and to love each other and to tell stories of how great you are. I pray we'll do that better. I pray we'll learn to connect better and be transparent and say, hey, I'm struggling. Would you help me? Because this isn't easy. And a lot of times, because Jesus, we haven't fully given you our heart and life, we allow, we, we allow ourselves to become part of the evil that's happening because we don't say anything. Help us. For those who've raised their hand and they said they're in a dark place and it's a tough, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come and fill them with power and authority and joy and peace and, and discernment and wisdom to know how to live and how to act and how to behave, that they would dive into seeing Jesus how you did it. And for those who have said, I could trust you more, Holy Spirit, come and give us, we want to trust you more. And so give us the strength and the power because in our weakness, you're strong. And so be strong for us. And may we get alone with you and daily say, help me trust you more, help me trust you more. And in doing that, I pray you'll fill us with the power and ability and strength to trust you in a way that will cause us to be Jesus in the world. And that will be awesome. We'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you go, we had scheduled a worship night tonight. We're not going to be doing that. So if you're planning on doing that, I apologize. We will reschedule that. But if you're here and you're saying, man, I'd love for somebody to pray with me. I'm just going through a tough time when it comes to my job or just a tough time period. There'll be people up here to pray with you. We'd love to do that. But we love you. We care about your life because God cares about it. And we just envision a future where the hope that is in us is just pouring out of us all over the place. But that actually might impact the world. So may you be a blessing to your world because God's been a blessing to you. Have a great week.